Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When we did that first music festival in 1974, the reason I was so keenly interested in doing that, why I continued to do it going on 49 years, was because I felt like it was important to make this at least available to subsequent generations so they had an opportunity to choose it. They might not choose it, but they would have at least an opportunity. And that has happened remarkably a lot. I remember four or five years ago, I was on stage in front of about 20,000 people announcing the next band. And I had my three-year-old granddaughters in my arms, twins. And I thought, you know what? This is exactly why I did this. This is exactly why I have done this all these years. And you know, the money I've made off producing this festival, I couldn't buy a stick of gum. I was just doing it because it was important to do. But I got paid that day with those two little girls looking out of that crowd and thinking, wow, this is important. There's no way they couldn't think it was important. It was, it was so overwhelming. I have 10 grandchildren and they all speak French and they all love going to this festival. And they also love TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and Adele and Beyonce and everything else. But they love this too. Isn't that a wonder? My name is Barry Jean Ancelet. I was born here in South Louisiana in a French-speaking family. I went to Indiana University to get an MA in folklore, then to France to get a doctorate in anthropology and linguistics. And I consider myself to be one of the luckiest academics in the world because I got to come back to my hometown and become a professor at the university where I grew up. The several parishes in South Louisiana, collectively called Acadiana, are also known as Cajun country. And while the vibrancy of Cajun culture, its food, music, and sense of celebration have become well known and are embraced both across the U.S. and the world, that embrace is relatively a new phenomenon. It's also one that many rightfully suggest should better include and represent those who identify as Creole, which we'll get to a little later. Welcome to Lost Cultures Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. What can we learn about a place by delving into the people who once lived there? In what ways do cultures build upon each other as populations come and go? How do they complement each other, interact, and leave their marks on the people that come after them? And are cultures truly ever lost, even if the people move on?
Akadi, Akadi, Akkadian, Cajun, Akkadiana. These words are both part of and help to tell the story of the people and culture that developed in South Louisiana over the course of the last three centuries. But they do not and cannot tell the story alone. The culture they help to describe and explain is informed by and infused with elements from various peoples who all came to bear on a region and its environment. Those elements traveled from several continents to meet and intertwine in a unique mix. And while it may be tempting to compare them to one of the most well-known types of dishes to emerge from the history they helped to build, not even gumbo is complex enough to serve as an apt metaphor. As with so many of the cultures we've discussed on this podcast, we're lucky to be living in a time when Cajun and Creole people, their culture, and their history have undergone study and revitalization. The recorded knowledge now available to us about them is perhaps deeper than it has ever been. But it's important to understand that this is largely due to concerted efforts that developed in direct response to attempts at suppressing the culture and its unique qualities, especially its language. So let's start with those efforts and go from there. At the beginning of the episode, we heard from someone who's been very involved in the movement to document and pass along the culture of Cajun and Creole people over the past 50 or so years. So once again, here is Barry Ansoulet, Professor Emeritus of Francophone Studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. The attitude that my family had about the French language, they never bought into the shame. My grandmother often said, an homme qui parle deux langues vaut deux hommes. A man who speaks two languages is worth two men. There was always a great respect for the language and the culture in my family. That's what informed the way I looked into it. When I began to be interested in this back in the 70s, we weren't in the libraries very much, you know. And I thought, you know, man, we ought to have some books about us in the library so that people can know about us and learn about us in in the future. And somebody said, well, we're going to have to write them. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. So we started writing them and putting them on the shelf and then writing another one, putting it on the shelf. And next thing you know, there's a a section. (laughs) When we started collecting the archives, my dear friend and colleague Dewey Balfa, the musician, said, you know, what we need is an archive. All these people come here and they record all this stuff and they go away with all their recordings. We need some to stay here so that we can study ourselves and come to understand ourselves better. And I said, well, you know, I'm just a student. I can't afford to produce an archive. And he said, can you buy a cassette tape? I said, yeah. He said, well, buy a cassette tape and do an interview and put it on the shelf. And then when you buy another one and do another interview and put that second cassette next to the first one on the shelf, that's the beginning of an archive. That's how homemade this was, how improvised this whole affair has been. Also, I want to say that when we started building the archives, I got in touch with Lomax and Oster and Rinsler and all these people who had come through and asked them, would you mind giving us a copy of everything? And they were all delighted to do it. So all of a sudden, we ended up with this huge bank of information about ourselves. And that was my playground for years. And I also was adamant that that archive was not going to be a morgue. It was going to be a recycling plant. It was going to be a source for information that was going to be used and put into play. And that's what's happened. So what is the story that those books and archives tell about the people who we now know as Cajuns? Well, one of the many groups that preceded the Cajuns were the Acadians. And though they may not be the sole ancestors of the culture and people, 
The Acadians are a group whose historical importance has been embraced by many over the years. The people who became the Acadians were French settlers in the New World in the early 17th century. One of the first French settlements in North America was in what came to be Acadie. In 1604, the people there then were not thinking of themselves as Acadians, yet they were French settlers, of course. That first French settlement didn't work because the first French settlers who came to that area came as part of this initial colonizing effort. And they did so well that the English attacked the colony. That effort ended. And it started up again in 1632. And that's the important part of the story. They wanted to send farmers and they recruited around the area uh the northern Poitou province in the western France and Vendia in the coastal Atlantic France. And they sent farmers and blacksmiths and other workers to make the colony work. But those people arrived largely without a military flag or a cross. So if you arrive with an army, the tendency to impose yourself. But if you arrive without an army, you imagine these people getting off the shore there and they look around and said, well, there's already people here. Maybe we ought to be careful not to irritate them. <laughs> we'll work with them and get them to understand what we're trying to do. And anyway, they negotiated their way in, and it worked so well that they were thriving very quickly. But the government forces said, well, wait, wait, we have to have military. We have to send priests. We have to send missionaries. They started doing that later. But by then, the initial settlers had figured out that it worked really well the other way. And so there was a lot of resistance to changing that. All that to say that those initial settlers so utterly integrated themselves into this new context, this new way of life, working with the indigenous people who were nearby. They so utterly integrated themselves that they developed a new sense of identity. And that word, Acadien, that they used to call themselves, came from the place, Acadie, which is what the indigenous people called the place, Cadie. They are, to my knowledge, the first group of European settlers in the New World to begin calling themselves by a term that came from the New World and not the Old World. They were, in a sense, the earliest version of European Americanus. <laughs> they had transformed, they had become Americanized. They had become part of this place and had, in a very real way, began to detach themselves from their original place. One of the reasons why this was able to happen also is because where they recruited for these settlers was a relatively small area of France. So those people already kind of knew each other. They were neighbors. And if you ask them to close their eyes and imagine a house, they would all seen the same one. They spoke with similar dialect, similar vocabulary. They would have thought of celebrating Easter and Christmas the same way. They had a social connection that further intensified the development of this new sense of identity. Those are the people who lived from that 1632 beginning all the way up to 1755, despite the fact that that area that they had called Acadie had become Nova Scotia when England wrested it from French control. This change in control was a result of the French and Indian War, during which the French and British colonists in North America fought each other, each aided by Native American tribes with which they were allied. Unfortunately for the French colonists, the British population outnumbered them by more than 30 to 1, which gave them quite an advantage, ultimately leading to a complete takeover of French Canada. And when that happened, the English 
were understandably nervous about all these French settlers and what had become their place. And, you know, if you think about it from the English perspective, it must have looked perfectly upside down. Like all the people who were thriving on the best lands, doing well, were these French-speaking settlers. They no longer thought of themselves as French. They thought of themselves as Acadians. But the English thought of them as French because of the language they spoke. So the English began to undertake what they called, in fact, a grand and noble scheme. That's words directly from one of the English colonial governors to rid the colony of these French settlers, to get them out of the way so that they could put good English and Scottish and Irish settlers on those lands. And that ultimately resulted in the grand expulsion of the Acadians that began in 1755 and continued for years later, where they were imprisoned and hunted down and get put on boats and forcibly sent away. Not everyone. There are a lot of Acadians who hid in the woods and survived, and their descendants are still there today in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and the Canadian Maritimes. But many of them were captured and put on boats and sent to the 13 colonies, or some of them were sent to prison camps in England, eventually repatriated to France. And some of those exiles eventually began to make their way to Louisiana. They began to arrive here 10 years after in 1765 and continued to arrive in trickles. And then a large group came in 1785, those Acadians who had been repatriated to France. It wasn't their place anymore. It wasn't their reality anymore. And so those who had been repatriated to France, the local French government officials said, we don't understand these people. You know, we're treating them as well as our other serfs. And they didn't want to live that way anymore. Anyway, the French government offered any Acadians who wanted to relocate to Louisiana in 1785, free passage. And huge numbers of them took advantage of that and ended up in Louisiana, including some of my ancestors. And it's during this time, after what became known as the Great Expulsion, when many of the Acadians who lost their homes in Canada displayed their true ability to adapt to both their circumstances and their environment. We are here because they did something very different. They dug in and made a life out of very little. They worked hard. They got married. They had families. They raised big families and worked their fingers to the bone, providing for them and made it possible for us to be here. So how have things shifted? Well, in some cases, we've preserved a lot of early elements. You know, we've preserved some of the ways that our ancestors had done things as far back as France, songs, stories, elements of cuisine, elements of architecture, vernacular architecture, elements of cultural expression, you know, the fact that we celebrate Mardi Gras and other such things. But necessarily, those things can't stay the same. I mean, the context is remarkably different. We were in a very hot, wet place, so we couldn't grow wheat. We couldn't persist in our French ancestors' love of bread for a long time. Tried to plant wheat early on, and that didn't work. And it was the Native people and the African slaves who said, you know, that's not going to work. It never works. What will work is this. And that's how we got rice and corn and cornbread instead of other bread. You say, oh, describe the history of Cajun food. For starters, it's incredibly complex. It's not linear at all. It's literally all over the map. My name is Marie Decody Como. I own and operate Cajun food tours here in Lafayette, Louisiana, heart of Cajun country. I had my 10th anniversary last summer, and I am proud to call myself Cajun. 
one misconception of Cajun food is like, oh, the Acadians came down from Acadie and they brought all their foodways and that's where we get gumbo and jambalaya. And that's not true at all. You know, what we would consider Cajun food today is known as being spicy and that did not come from Acadie. The heat seemed to come the late 1700s during Spanish colonial period with the Spanish having come from Central and South America. We're able to bring a lot of those spices and hot peppers and things like that. What was already here was the onions and bell peppers that are a huge part of our diet. We talk about the holy trinity of Cajun cooking, which is onions, green peppers, and celery. And that's when we say Cajun food is spicy. A lot of times it's not necessarily heat spice, but it's all these flavors that we use. And then later, Germans came. Huge parts of our diet now are like yams and okra from the African influence. Free people of color as well as enslaved people in South Louisiana, introducing those things into our food. The Native Americans, though, were already growing beans and corn. So cornbread comes from the indigenous people in this area, not to mention being able to hunt the deer and wild turkeys and teaching us how to use filet from the sassafras trees. So many of those things that we consider Cajun foods today exist because of the very rich influences of other cultures coming together with the Acadians who ended up in this area. I think one of the things that maybe we do get from the Acadians and Acadias, the creativity of using what you have, and we still do that. We'll return to food later in the episode. For now, though, let's examine some other ways in which different people and cultures interacted with the Acadians and began to build a new South Louisiana. The Africans were looking at the way the initial French settlers were building houses out in the country and I said, man, if you don't put a porch on that, you're going to bake, for example, a house type from South Louisiana, traditional house type. There's something about it that looks French from the western provinces of France, but then there are elements that don't, that are remarkably different. And it's different because there was a cultural fusion and also an evolution because this was a remarkably different place. And so in some regards, we preserved old influences. But our ancestors also were wise enough to know that they had to evolve because if you try to eat and live and do everything the way they had done it in France or even in Acadie, they wouldn't have survived. They had to adapt. If I had to choose one word to describe Cajuns and Creoles of South Louisiana, it would be adaptive, stunningly adaptive, very readily incorporated influences that worked and produced something that had resonance from the past, but was also brand new. And this characterizes so much of what is still going on today. In the world of Cajun music and Creole music, for example, you can hear ancient influences, but you can also hear synthesizers and amplifiers and the influences of rock and roll and country music. And to not have those cultural fusions would be dishonest and wouldn't work. The music played and enjoyed by Cajuns and Creoles has become both one of its major exports and one of its best modes of internal self-expression. And its history also proves out Barry Ancelet's point about Cajuns being adaptive. So let's turn now to someone who has been involved in playing and interpreting the culture through music for nearly all their life. I was raised 
south of Lafayette near Broussard, Louisiana. And I like to say that I kind of lived a dualistic lifestyle because on one hand, you know, I was a typical American boy, lived in the suburbs, rode my bikes with my cousins who all lived in my neighborhood and got into mischief and trouble. And at the same time, we were always going to gigs with the family band. Le Fadami Show, my dad played accordion. He still does. They've been playing since the mid 80s. So we grew up going to their shows, listening to them play Cajun music. My name is Louis Michaud. I'm the fiddle player and singer for the Lost Bayou Ramblers and quite a few other musical pursuits. And I'm a resident of St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. Louisiana French was all around. Like a lot of people in my family and in my circle spoke Cajun French, but I wasn't really necessarily aware of what it was. I just thought it was the language that the older people spoke. And it wasn't until I became a teenager and I had been playing stand-up bass with Le Ferrami show since I was like 14, and I was playing rock and roll, guitar, and blues on my own, that I kind of realized I had been playing Cajun music for five years already, and I kind of just began to realize the beauty and the depth of the language and the repertoire. So I finally kind of got into it on my own after having not even really acknowledged the difference of it between what it was to grow up as an American from South Louisiana and what it was to grow up as an American from anywhere else. We asked Michaud how he might describe Cajun and Creole music to someone who may be unfamiliar with it. There's so many ways to define it. And there's so many kind of subcategories. There's Zydeco and Creole and Cajun. Cajun music is a uniquely American music that has its roots in the diverse peoples of South Louisiana. So you could start with, obviously, the natives who lived here before anyone else arrived. And going into New Orleans, where most of us showed up in the first place, you take the native aspect and you take the Acadians who arrived. You take the Creole French, like the Michos, and you take the Spanish, and you take the Germans and their accordions, and you take the Africans and their rhythms and their language and song structures. And they all came together in different ways and in different places and times to make what Cajun music is now. It really has truly diverse roots. And it's kind of hard to put your finger on saying where it came from because there's so many aspects. You know, the German accordion, you have African rhythms locked in there, you have French language, you have fiddles that at once sound Celtic and also old European and also influenced by new American music styles. So it's truly a constantly evolving American music that came to where it is now over a few hundred years of evolution in America. What is commonly called Cajun music is what began to be recorded commercially in 1928. By then, the various French cultural influences had produced a music that on the one hand had preserved, for example, lyrics that go all the way back to the Middle Ages in France and, you know, probably melodies too, though that's harder to ascertain. But it also had already began to incorporate influences from emerging jazz, from Hispanic elements in the population, German, Alsatian, English, Irish. But initially it was mostly accordions and fiddles, guitars, eventually began to add drums, 
and steel guitars and other elements. They were being influenced from Western swing and Appalachian music. And we do live in America. And, you know, we did have radios and we, we did have record players. What you hear is what influences you, especially if you're a musician, if you're a creative type, you're going to be interested in any kind of new input. Even to the point where some of the performers had begun to sing in English as well as French. Much of Cajun music relies on particular instrumentation, so we asked Michaud to explain the significance of some of the most used instruments. It's said that the fiddle was kind of the first instrument to say come down with the Acadians or come from the old world with the French and maybe the Spanish brought the guitar and we know that the accordions we use were imported from Germany and mostly through Jewish department stores that were here in South Louisiana. How the accordion became the lead instrument is interesting because they say the accordion is kind of the most recent instrument in Cajun music. Before that, it was fiddles, maybe guitars, triangles, which were made from hay tines. So they became like this very primal rhythm instrument. And the triangle has such an important bass in the rhythm. It holds the two-step. It holds the waltz. And Le Frère Michaud was built around a triangle. We were one of the only... Cajun bands that I grew up with that didn't have a drum set and electric bass and such. So we all got the initiation learning that root rhythm first on the triangle. The fiddle, of course, is a worldwide instrument because you can play anything on it. It's completely open. You can play microtones. You can play any type of music on the fiddle. The diatonic accordion we use in Cajun music is much more limited. It has only a handful of the notes. It doesn't have all 12 chromatic notes. So when the accordion came in, it limited the melodic structure of the songs and the melodic ability, but it also enhanced the rhythm because the accordion is a very percussive instrument. And I think the triangle and the fiddle and the accordion make such an interesting and evocative rhythm. Like you could feel the movement and it's a dance music. So it's there to make you move. And why is it a dance music? And why is that important? Is because dancing is part of courting. It's part of socializing. It's part of where people meet each other and have a chance to connect romantically or socially. And it's such an important part of our society. We also asked Michaud to describe the instrumentation used in another well-known music genre associated with Cajun and Creole country. The interesting thing about Cajun and Zotico is they both have the accordion. Zotico is not known to have the fiddle so much, but the rhythm instrument of Cajun music is the triangle and the percussion instrument of Zotico is the washboard. And I think one thing that's very, very interesting to point out about both Cajun and Zotico and all of Louisiana and all of American music, in fact, that it all has an inspiration and a root from Congo Square, New Orleans. Congo Square was the only place in America where slaves and free people of color and anyone was allowed to make music every Sunday on and off over periods of the last few centuries. But I'm actually reading a book on it right now. I was just reading about how they would play the mule jawbone and they would rub it with a stick or something to make this sound. And they actually compared it to the washboard and that would make complete sense that so much of our inspiration and the roots of our music are actually based in 
much older musical forms from Europe and Africa, and also based in the need to use what you have to make music. And a lot of that does come from Congo Square and was transmitted through the people in Congo Square and the people without Congo Square. The Michos lived blocks from Congo Square for a hundred years. And all of Louisiana's roots have come from there at one point or another. And so I think it's really interesting to point out where the roots of Cajun and Zydeco are also from. Another musical tradition important in Cajun culture is the Fedodo. Fedodo is such a great concept because it is what's become known as a Cajun dance. Fedodo was either a house dance or actually at a dance hall. And the reason we call it a Fedodo is because that's what you tell the kids, because Fedodo means go to sleep. There was a side room where you'd bring all the kids and the kids would eventually fall asleep to the sound of the music. And you wouldn't tell them, hey, we're going party and we're going dance because they'd get excited. Be like, this is an adult activity, but we're bringing our kids because we're a community and you're not going to leave them at home alone. So you'd bring the kids and the kids would fall asleep in another room or at least play or whatever. And the adults would have the dance and do the courting And you'd be watching your children to make sure they were dancing appropriately with other teenagers and that no one was getting into trouble and fighting and knives and alcohol and all of that. It was a way to, I guess, kind of keep the children separated from the grownups and the adolescents that were coming into grownupness. And it's great because it literally means go to sleep. And what are we doing? The opposite. And the Bro Brothers actually have a song called Fedodo. And I've kind of rewritten the lyrics and I perform it sometimes. And it's all about going to sleep because I honestly love sleeping. I mean, I'm a musician and I have very late nights sometimes. And so when you work so hard and sometimes you drive overnight and you have very late nights and very early mornings, you come to appreciate sleep in a way you've never had before. So I'm like, put me on the floor and let me go to sleep. (laughs) Alors, fais dodo sur le plancher. We actually threw some Fedodos right before the pandemic at a little brewery in Arneville. They had a little dance hall, and my band Soul Creole at the time would play a dance, and people would bring their kids, and we had a little room on the side where they could watch movies. They'd watch cartoons on a projector. We'll be back with more after the break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Alicia Prakash. And you're listening to Lost Cultures, Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. 
Despite the richness of Cajun food and musical traditions, the culture hasn't always been as accepted and celebrated as it now is. Over the years, there have been attempts to suppress what makes the people of South Louisiana unique. And those efforts have often focused especially on a vital component, the French language, or most specifically, the French language as spoken in Louisiana. I was born in 1951 to a French-speaking family here in South Louisiana. And in those days, this area was still reeling from the effects of a brutal Americanization project that not only here in Louisiana, but all over the country, sought to eliminate languages other than English in the hopes of making everyone what they thought of as American. That pressure on the language and the culture actually began as early as 1803 when the young United States acquired Louisiana from France. At the time, the French-speaking population was diverse. It included French Creoles, that is, the descendants of the French who settled here and were born and raised and lived here. There were also Spanish Creoles and German Creoles, but most of them spoke French as well. And then there was the Acadians who arrived in large numbers after the exile from Acadia in 1755. They began to arrive in South Louisiana about 10 years later in 1765, and then another large group arrived in 1785. So they had enough critical mass to affect things like dialect, accent, language style, culture as well. The French Creoles also had critical mass, and so did the descendants of the uh, African who were brought into Louisiana enslaved to work on the plantations and in the state in general. They learned the language of the area as well, or you know, in some sort of linguistic negotiation that produced what is sometimes called Creole, which is a linguistic fusion of African influences as well as European influences. And then after Toussaint Louverture's revolution in Haiti, a whole group of Haitians, French Creoles, as well as former slaves, some who continued to be slaves, who all spoke French and or Creole, arrived in pretty large numbers as well, mostly in the New Orleans area. All that to say, this was a very complicated place linguistically, culturally, historically, in lots of ways. All of those cultures were here together and they didn't remain absolutely distinct. They fused. They influenced each other. It's one of the reasons why everybody eats gumbo and everybody's houses have porches on them and everybody puts cayenne peppers in their food and everybody has syncopated music and dance. What most people love about South Louisiana culture is the result of that cultural fusion that happened between African and European influences that found themselves both away from their original homes in a new place where such combinations were possible and happened. Contrary to what many may believe, the term Creole, as used in South Louisiana, originally had no specific racial connotation. Instead, as Ansele suggests, it referred to people who were themselves born in Louisiana, but descended from those who'd come from elsewhere. That said, the meaning has evolved and cultural fusions such as those being discussed in this episode came to be known as a process called creolization, which is essentially something we also discussed last episode when exploring the Taino culture of the Caribbean. The Louisiana Purchase occurred, statehood occurred, and for some reason, the United States of America was nervous about its own identity, about its own security. 
According to Anselet, after fighting against the British in both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the still new United States felt a need to forcibly assert a somewhat more unified national identity. There was this concern that people who spoke languages other than English were a potential liability, a problem, even a threat. So there was a grand project undertaken to get people to speak English. And this happened in all sorts of contexts, not only here, but among the Hispanic communities, among the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Norwegians, the Swedes, the indigenous peoples. All sorts of people were put into various situations where they were pressured or encouraged to learn English. Various events in the first part of the 20th century also put pressure on the French-speaking peoples of Louisiana. In 1901, oil was discovered near Jennings in South Louisiana, and the exploitation of that brand new industry occurred in English. The workers were coming from places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, where oil had been developed before, Texas, Oklahoma, and all the workers and all of the management and all the negotiators for property rights spoke English. So economic viability is a strong factor in language survival. In 1914, World War I added to that pressure. Recruiters were a bit shocked to hear American citizens who could barely speak English, if at all, in some cases. Then in 1927, the Great Flood, when the Mississippi River levees broke and flooded much of South Louisiana, all of the relief, all of the aid, arrived in English. Great Depression, all the relief, all the aid arrived in English. But perhaps the most damaging source of pressure on the French language and culture in Louisiana came from the state's own government. In 1921, a new state constitution was passed that banned all schools from teaching French and established English as the state's official language. According to Anselet, children weren't even allowed to speak French on school grounds. Imagine that, right? You're a five-year-old, six-year-old kid, and you've only spoken French at home, and you arrive at school, and all of a sudden, you're told you can't speak the only language you speak. That is going to necessarily be not only a problem, but humiliating. We often hear stories about how these young kids were not allowed to even ask permission to go to the bathroom in French, and they didn't know how to in English. So consequently, several generations of young French-speaking kids in Louisiana were forced to wet their pants at school. I mean, a language that causes you that kind of humiliation, you understandably might be tempted to try to get rid of in your life. So the pressure was not only coming from outside, but that outside pressure produced an inside pressure to conform just so that you wouldn't feel that pain, you wouldn't feel humiliated. All of those things applied pressure to the language and the culture, and that was happening pretty rapidly. People continued to speak French in families, but it was beginning to erode pretty fast. By World War II and the post-war years, we were seeing a lot of young kids who grew up in French-speaking families whose parents had gone through great pains and trouble to try to get them to speak English because it was the only way they felt like they were going to have a chance to succeed in school or in the economy and society. However, in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, just to show you how this moves rather slowly, places like Evangeline Parish and Vermilion Parish, St. Martin Parish, uh, a few other places in South Louisiana, according to the censuses, there were roughly 75 to 80 percent of the people in the population still spoke French. 
the older people mostly. And by the time we got to, when I was growing up, very, very few young people spoke French. It lasted, it lasted, it lasted, and then it changed. Rather, all of a sudden. It's important to note here that another factor at play during this time was the racism of America's Jim Crow era. According to the historic New Orleans collection, the term Cajun existed by the dawn of the 20th century, but was mainly used as a pejorative. Before Jim Crow, the diverse people of South Louisiana were largely known as Creoles, whether they were of European, African, or mixed ancestry. But because the term Creole was thought to indicate at least a connection to blackness by those outside of South Louisiana, many people in the region began to reject the identity to avoid being viewed as black or mixed race. As a result, the Cajun identity began to be adopted by many, especially those previously considered Acadian Creoles, while at the same time, the Creole identity began to be viewed as more aligned with those of black or mixed racial ancestry. In reality, though, it's become hard to truly delineate or decouple the two terms or the histories behind them, which is why these days they're so often referred to in the same breath, Cajun and Creole. After World War II, we saw the birth of rock and roll, the emergence of the blues and the Newport Jazz and Heritage Festival, the Newport Folk Festival, expressions of counterculture movements. A lot of young people in America were rebelling, not wanting to get washed out in some sort of mass culture, trying to preserve some distinction. And here in South Louisiana, our counterculture movement was a return to language and culture, a reevaluation of what that meant, of what value it had for us. And so in 1968, the same state of Louisiana that had banned French from schools created the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana with the expressed intention of getting French taught in the schools again. So that's the extent to which it turned around, fishtailed. And then after 1968, in the 70s, we began to see a lot of young people, my age then, <laughs> reconsidering all of that and becoming interested in music and the food and the culture and running Mardi Gras and the whole gamut. This is sometimes referred to as the Louisiana French Revival or Renaissance. There was a reconsideration of what our culture and language meant to us and an effort to try to revive it, preserve it. By 1974, at least two important things happened. First, Louisiana passed into law a new constitution that, among other things, stated the, quote, right of the people to preserve, foster, and promote their respective historic linguistic and cultural origins is recognized, end quote. Second, an important cultural festival occurred for the first time. In 1974, I participated in the production of an evening concert in Blackham Coliseum in Lafayette to call attention to Cajun and Creole Zydeco music. And we had no idea who might be interested in this. We felt like it was important to do, but had no idea if we were pipe dreaming or what. But anyway, it was a Tuesday night, March 26, 1974, a rainy Tuesday night. There was a foot and a half of water on Johnson Street where the Blackham Coliseum was. We didn't even know if any of the musicians would actually come. And they all came, and 12,000 people came. 
to celebrate their music. We touched a nerve. <laughs> I wish I could have known that ahead of time. I would have worried less until it happened. But it turned into a real turning point, people paying attention to and appreciating our own music. By then, by the early 70s, a lot of people thought of Cajun music and Zydeco as old people's music, the stuff that the older generation listened to. Everybody was listening to Elvis Presley and Hank Williams and the Beatles and, you know, popular music. Well, I have photographs from that first concert, and a lot of the people in the audience were hippies. There were a lot of young people in that audience, and for them, this meant something else. It meant that, you know, this was us. This was ours, and we could celebrate this. This distinguished us. We also did that first concert in a place where everybody had to be sitting down, and this was essentially dance music. Right? It was music that came out of the dance halls. This sounds counterintuitive. Why would we play this music in a place where people can't dance? And Dewey Balfa, one of the musicians involved in helping to organize the first concert, said if they're dancing, they won't pay attention any more than they ever have. If they're sitting down, we're going to get them to pay attention in a new way. And he was right. That first concert was followed by a second one in 1975. And by then, people had gotten the message and they were starting to wiggle a lot in their seats. People came out of there with splinters in their butts. <laughs> and so we turned them loose and went outside the third year in 76. And it became what is now known as Festival Zacadien Creole, an annual celebration of our music and cuisine and material culture. That festival, I think, brought attention to the younger generation that people in their teens, that if they wanted to play music, they could play this music as well. And these people were available. I mean, by 1974, 75, 76, you could listen to Led Zeppelin and learn to play it by listening to the records or on the radio. But with these people, you could actually go to their house and learn from them. And that started happening. And suddenly, rather quickly, we started seeing people like Zachary Richard and Beau Soleil and Bruce Degrepaw and eventually Steve Riley and all of the subsequent generations of young Cajun musicians who saw this music on a four foot high stage with a really nice sound system. It's hard to fall in love with this kind of music if you don't have access to it as a kid. And the only place it was being played back then, before the festival circuit evolved, was dance halls and you had to be of legal drinking age to get in, right? So little kids rarely heard it. You might have heard it on radio or daddy might have had a house party or something for people who had access to that. But generally speaking, young people didn't have access to it. And suddenly they did because it was a festival outside. And we have a photograph of a very young Steve Riley, who's about nine or 10 years old, 11 years old, with his elbows on the stage, looking at Dewey Balfa and Mark Savoy perform. And you could see in his face, he's thinking, I want to be up there someday. And then a few years later, we have a photograph of Steve Riley performing. And there's some other kid, about eight or nine years old, with his elbows on stage. And you could see in his face, he's thinking, I want to be up there someday. Right? So this is how it gets passed along. This is how it gets transmitted to subsequent generations. We very quickly understood that you can't force young people to do much of anything, especially not love this music. All we could do is make it available and attractive. 
And right now in 2023, we're organizing the upcoming festival for October. This is going to be our 49th year. And we are having the devil of a time paring down the possibilities to the 40 slots we have. If somebody had told me back in 1974 that we were going to have this problem, I would have wondered about their sanity. But look at what's happened. There's been an absolute explosion of creativity in French, in this cultural music that has absolutely stunned most people, myself included. And not only that, but a lot of these young bands are playing the old stuff their own way, but they're also composing new stuff the old way. They're playing new stuff that fits, that demonstrates the continuity, but the music is renewing itself, not only with performers, but with what they're performing. Let's go back now to Louis Michaud, who you'll remember grew up around his family's band in the 1980s and 90s. His own band, Lost Bayou Ramblers, has itself released several albums and EPs and toured all over the country as well as overseas. Michaud told us how his Cajun French lyrics are an attempt to help keep the culture alive. Personally, my connection with the language is that when I finally realized the beauty of it and started learning it for myself, I felt like I was accessing another side of myself that... I didn't have access to before, but that was always there. I felt like I made myself more complete by learning the language. And I think that the language is so important historically in a sense of the language brings so much knowledge forward, whether it be history, land use, family, music, cooking, the language is so all-encompassing because it is just as diverse as the people and the music itself. It has roots in Spanish, native languages, African, and also it's important for the music because the rhythm of the music is based in the language. And I call it lyric poetry because we make a lot of it up on the spot. Sometimes there's a song where, okay, these are the words, But often there's a song where like there's a story and you have to retell it every time in your own way. And it's all based on throwing little words here or adding a word here, rhyming a word with this word that may or may not make complete sense. But there's a poetic license involved and that poetic license is the lyric poetry that drives the music. We asked which of their songs he'd suggest to someone unfamiliar with Lost Bayou Ramblers or Cajun music more generally. The song I would go with is off of the Lost Bayou Ramblers Kalinda album, which ended up winning a Grammy in 2018. It's called the Sabine Turnaround. And the Sabine is the westernmost border of Louisiana that shares with Texas, Sabine River. And the turnaround part is because you can still turn around and stay in Louisiana. But even though Cajun culture does go into East Texas, there was something I was dealing with on a personal level at the time. And the Sabine Turnaround is based off of another Cajun song called The Lacassine Special. And the reason I'm picking that is because it's rooted in an old song and an old melody 
but we play it in a way that fits our style and fits how we're trying to portray the music, which is we incorporate all kind of modern elements into our music, whether it be like samples and 808s or guitar and bass fuzz and accordion effects and such. Lost by Ramblers have taken extreme liberties to modernize KG music for our own sake, because we love it. We're not trying to do it to please anyone else. We're doing it because we love it. And it turns out that a lot of other people love it as well. I mean, we won a Grammy with it, which was such a humbling experience. And the other thing about the Sabine turnaround is it tells my story of love and loss, but continuing to choose love. Cajun and Zydeco music have become not only a way to internally transmit the culture from one generation to another, but with groups such as Lost Bayou Ramblers taking the music outside of Louisiana, it's also become an important expression of the culture to the outside world. Another is, of course, the cuisine, which has only become more well-known in recent decades, especially thanks to prominent chefs who have helped popularize it. But while Cajun cooking is now well-known outside of South Louisiana, just as with the music, its true strength is in how it binds the people and culture together internally. Family is just a huge piece of the Cajun culture, I think. Family and being together. When families get together, it always involves food. I think, you know, big way. Food is an extra love language here. You know, they say there's five love languages. Well, there's really six. You know, the sixth one is feed me, feed the people you love. You know, my grandmother cooked every Sunday. See, every single cousin, every aunt, every uncle. And I think that's real typical of growing up in this area. You know, I think originally though, Cajun food was not about the big name chef. It's food the way we make it at home. Okay, you can't do a Cajun food tour without including gumbo. It's just such a staple. But gumbo is such a staple that we all make gumbo in our homes. A good gumbo tastes like the one I make in my kitchen, you know, and that's what I expect and that's what I'm looking for. So when I go around to a restaurant looking for a restaurant to make a good gumbo, I'm not looking for the name of the chef. I'm looking for the gumbo that tastes the most like the gumbo I make in my kitchen, which is, tastes like the gumbo that my mama made in her kitchen, which tastes like the gumbo her mama made in her kitchen, you know. Returning to the language, another development has taken place in recent years. These days, many students are able to take part in French immersion programs in which they spend their school days not only learning French, but learning in French. For instance, math or science lessons are taught in French instead of English. There's a perception among many that the language is a really important ingredient in all of this cultural, social identity. And so we have persisted in trying to figure out ways to get as many young people as we can at least able to speak French, even though they may not speak French most of their waking hours, they're able to communicate and perform and create in French. And the most effective program to produce that result has been the French immersion programs, they are by far the most effective in producing people who can actually function in French. And there's a backstory here. <laughs> when the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana began to organize the teaching of French in schools again, after having been absent for all those years, in the early 1970s, the notion was that they needed to teach French 
correct, proper, academic, standard French. A number of us tried to explain that it wasn't a matter of just French. It was a matter of this French, the way we speak. The way we speak French is the language that produced the stories and the songs and the history that we all enjoy. So that was seen as a dichotomy, standard French or local French at the time. It was seen as an impossible dichotomy when in fact it was a false dichotomy. And we tried to explain that and it, it took a while, but eventually that started happening in the 1980s, mid 80s, we finally began to teach French in Louisiana, taking Louisiana French into consideration. So how does the title of our show, Lost Cultures, Living Legacies, relate to this obviously vibrant and flourishing culture? The living legacy is definitely the most important part of it because we all look back at what we've lost of the culture and we mourn for it. We mourn for those days when things had relevance and that it's harder to keep certain things alive because we have everything at our fingertips. And the living legacy part of it is the hope that we have in seeing that our culture, our language, our music, our lifestyle will live on through the next generations. My wife was a French teacher in a local high school, and many of her students didn't even realize that their family spoke French because their family wouldn't speak French around them because many of them were still feeling shamed to speak French and they thought it wrong to pass it on because they were taught that it was wrong and that it was a symbol of poverty. And she, taught many of her students to go and learn French from their families. And many of them are continuing that on. And there is a big resurgence of teaching the language in schools and teaching the music in schools. And what was once only taught by word of mouth or by transmission is now being taught in schools and in organized methods, which it's not the same as it was but it never was the same. It was a continually evolving language, culture, and set of standards. And the important thing is not that it's exactly like it was, that it continues to grow and that it continues to be appropriate and modernize and keep its place in our modern culture. Our culture is alive today, but it's alive in the way it is today. Cajun Creole culture of South Louisiana today is not at all what it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. If you're looking for a trip back in time, that can be arranged in places like living history museums, but experiencing what we do now is remarkably different. Just to give you one example, years ago, if you wanted to go hear in Cajun music, you had to go to a dance hall, right? Then the music started migrating to restaurants where people would eat and then also be able to hear the music and dance. And then places that would allow whole families, festivals. In a typical dance hall many years ago, the last song of the evening was always a waltz because you wanted to give dancers who were courting one last chance to dance close together. But at a festival, you have to close with a rousing two-step to create applause and to create a stir. So those things are constantly evolving and, and what we what we have today is a result of that evolution and it's 
reconsidered, reconfigured, reevaluated, reinvented in a lot of ways. It's still distinctive. And when this process is working best, it produces something that is uniquely ours, but it's also modern and able to survive in the 21st century. I mean, if we were trying to preserve and reproduce Cajun Creole culture the way it was in 1920, people would lose interest in that rather quickly. So where exactly can people who are interested in the culture go to interact with it? There's an Acadian museum in St. Martinville, and there's a few culture centers like the Vermilionville Living History Museum in Lafayette. There's also the Jean Lafitte Acadian Cultural Interpretive Centers, one in Eunice, one in Lafayette, and one in Thibodeau. But the best thing to do is to just go to some small town and be there and meet the people. You know, go eat somewhere, go dance somewhere, and meet the people, talk to people. We are our own best resource. We don't have ski slopes and beaches, right? You know, we're we're it. This is who we are. We are what you visit. Of course, one great way to both meet people and go eat somewhere is on Marie Decody Como's Cajun food tour. I like to be an ambassador, maybe a catalyst by which people can discover and ultimately fall in love with the unique, very special things of this area that they might not otherwise find without me, without my business. So I like to put them on my little cozy bus, complete with curtains and Tabasco lighting and stuff like that. And we're going to regale you with some of the stories and the history of our area, what makes it unique, the different peoples that have come together to make this culture what it is. And along the way, we're going to be stopping to eat, of course, and we're going to stop at several different locally owned fabulous restaurants or bakeries or meat markets or whatnot to get a variety of tastes. And boy, that's another thing about Cajun food. You cannot put it in one pot. You know, it's such a variety. So we have over 30 different locally owned restaurants that we work with, but we only go to five on a tour. So it varies a little bit. And the reason I have to do that is because we have so many awesome locally owned restaurants. You can't just limit it to the same five all the time. So We have a lot of people who will do my tour over and over and get to experience a few different places. One thing about this area, once you come and visit, it'll be calling your name to come back. And by the way, we definitely suggest you ask Miss Marie about her favorite boudin. You won't be sorry. Thank you to our guests, Barry Ancelet, Louis Michaud, and Marie Decody Como. Be sure to follow Lost Cultures, Living Legacies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love your feedback. If you could, please rate this podcast and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at travelandleisure.com slash lostcultures. This happens to be the last episode of the season, so if you haven't listened already, we have nine other episodes you can explore. Enjoy your travels! Lost Cultures Living Legacies is a production of Travel and Leisure and Dot Dash Meredith. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash, Associate Editorial Director at Travel and Leisure. 
Lottie LeMarie is our executive producer. Jeremiah McVeigh is our writer and co-producer. He also edited the episode. Dominique Arciero is our audio engineer. Stacy Leska is our researcher. Kyle Avalone is our fact checker. This episode was reviewed by Brian Ahern, a panelist on Dot Dash Meredith's Anti-Bias Review Board. Thanks also to Mackenzie Price, Director of Anti-Bias Initiatives. The theme song for Lost Culture's Living Legacies has been a piece called Beneath the Stars, which is composed by Joshua Spat. Jennifer Del Sol is Director for Audio Growth Strategy and Operations at Dot Dash Meredith. Nina Ruggiero is Digital Editorial Director for Travel and Leisure. Maya Catru-Levine is Luxury and Experiences Editor at Travel and Leisure.